Hey, good morning, church. Ushers, come forward if you would, please. We'll share in our offering together this morning. Thank you for giving. Your giving makes a difference. As you've heard me say many, many times, we're not sitting on an endowment funds, that kind of thing. Uh, every dollar comes in and goes back out again in ministry, so thank you for doing that. One of the ways in which you support ministry, uh, you saw Scott up, up uh, on the screen. Uh, Azimuth and uh, Journey North. Uh, he's out in the lobby this morning. Uh, your giving helps support Azimuth and Journey North. We're glad to offer that. Uh, stop by the table, pick up one of the brochures. If you're not in need right now, perhaps, of uh, some biblical counsel, mm, keep it handy. You just might be find yourself in that place. But we'd love to have you stop by, visit him, and uh, use those resources are, that are available to you. I want to pause for a moment this morning and give an acknowledgement uh, to Pastor Jim Wilkins. And I'm going to ask you to hold applause here for just a moment. Uh, this is Pastor Jim's last Sunday with us. He's completing uh, his time of serving here and our church staff at the end of the month. And he has served incredibly, incredibly well. Um, he, uh, he's right back there, if you don't know where he's at. He was out having cake. Um, <laughs> with other people. And so thanks for coming back, back in, Jim. I, I want you to know a couple of things. So Jim has been on staff with us here since 2014. Uh, before that, he served as an elder in the church. He and his family have been active in the church uh, through these many, many years of ministry and in, in very effective ministry. Uh, Jim and Chris came from some other church backgrounds. In fact, um, grew up at the North Avenue Alliance Church. So we're well familiar with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, uh, knew who we were. And almost immediately, when they found their way to the church uh, back 2004-ish, 3-ish, 99, um, immediately began to engage in the church and then becoming members and then serving in multiple, multiple capacities. Um, there are so many people's lives, families' lives, individual lives that had been ministered to and touched through the care of Pastor Jim and his oversight, through counseling, through weddings, funerals. Uh, and I want to publicly not only say my thanks to Jim, but I want to say, I want to hear you say, I want you to hear me say, this church is a better place because of his ministry, he and Chris together. It's a better place. The body of Christ has been served well with him serving here. And their leaving is a loss, but I want to qualify that for you. Certainly, them leaving here to go to another church setting is a loss for us. And he's not going very far. Uh, in fact, they're not moving out of their house. Um, they'll be pastoring. Jim will be the lead pastor at Covenant Community Church, which is like two miles down Route 15. And uh, someone said, when they heard that, said, what did you know about it? And I said, no, we didn't know anything because Jim kept it a complete secret. Um, <laughs> not true. Jim, you've been transparent all along the way. In fact, uh, the church didn't have a pastor. We had a couple of them pastors. Um, they asked if he would be willing to, if he'd be willing to fill in there for them. He did that. We knew that all along. He sat down with me early on and said, listen, the church is talking about asking me to become their pastor. I wanted to give you a heads up. We've been in that journey together, and he has acted with absolute transparency. It was with joy that I was able in our meeting together to say, Jim, we're not losing you to the enemy. Um, we're not losing you at all. It, there is a loss for us, but we're not losing him. This is simply a masterful God 
moving around the parts and the players for the best effectiveness for the kingdom. And as I said this to Jim, I say to you, uh, we want to partner together. We see you as one of us and your service there, whether that be here. And you have made this church a better place, and we are better for it. Would you please stand and give a vote of thanks to Jim for his ministry? So what some of you could see, some of you couldn't, is that Jim immediately shook hands with two people right in front of him. Uh, Ellie has been the assistant, the ministry of assistant in care ministries. I mean, she transcends time and transcends pastoral, st pastoral staff, and she is retiring at the end of this month. And so they, they kind of depart together. And so Ellie and Rod together, we're so thankful uh, for your ministry and partnership with us. Stop afterward and have some cake um, and just thank Jim for his ministry and demonstrate to him uh, your and our appreciation together. So my thanks to Jim. We'll let you get back to your cake. Um, and, uh, and be sure to stop by if you would later. Um, let me just uh, give you an introduction this morning to where we're going to head today in the next couple of weeks. In a pastor's gathering that I was a part of back in January, uh, we talked about a lot of different things. These are pastors of larger churches in our denomination. So we talked about a lot of stuff. We've talked about like post-COVID. We've talked about, even take COVID out of the picture, we've talked about the culture of the church. And the culture of the church has changed drastically uh, in the past five to eight years, and even more so in the, in the past 20, 25 years. Culture has changed drastically. One of the things that came up, one of the statements that was made that we began to talk about and agreed with was this statement, and that is that there's a new culture of, of, of almost fear in the church, and certainly a different culture. The statement is this. We made the observation, one fellow made the observation that the church, the church and Christians today have seemed to have moved from a state of being on mission to a state of being on edge. Now just think about that for a moment. And as we talked about it as a group, we together said, that sounds right. That it seems like Christians and churches have moved from a position of being on mission and they've moved to a position of being on edge. The sense of hope being replaced by a sense of, well, it just seems hopeless. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world. There's a lot of stuff going on in the culture. There's things taking place around us in our state, out of our state, that have a lot of Christians looking at it all and kind of going, ah, I don't know what the future holds. And it doesn't look real hopeful for the church. And, and have kind of substituted mission for an idea of preparation of sorts for what could get bad or what could get worse. I love the statement that we talked about in that great meeting. They've replaced that state of mission with being in a state of being on edge, on mission to on edge. Um, folks, this is no time. This is no time for Christians to get off mission. In fact, I would contend with you that the time is about as right as it's ever been for Christians to keep on mission, the mission that God has given us. Now think about this for just a moment. If I could isolate every one of you, pull you aside for a minute and say, hey, we're doing a quick questionnaire here. Would you tell us, what do you think is the purpose of the church? No words in your mouth. You just, you know, you just tell us, what do you think is the purpose of the church? My contention, if you've been to one of our, our membership classes, you would have heard me talk about this. My contention would be is that most everyone that attends church would be able to get the purpose of the church. 
You'd get it right. Now, you may not use the same words. You may not use the same definition. But if we isolated each one and said, okay, give me the mission of the church. What's the purpose of the church? I think it would go something like this. Okay, purpose of the church, purpose of the church. Uh, Well, we come to worship God. Boom, you're right. First one, you got it right. We worship God. Got it. What else do we do? Ah, purpose of the church. Um, Well, we care for one another. Absolutely, we care. That's called edification. We edify one another. Uh, Worship, exalting God. So we get those two. Anything else? Uh, You know, I'm thinking we should tell people the story. Absolutely, that's called evangelization. Those are the three key purposes of the church. My contention would be that if we were to survey all of us using different words, perhaps we would all arrive at the same place and say, yeah, 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 that's the most important part. Now, listen very carefully what comes next. While we're here right now in this gathering, whether here, whether at North Avenue, right over here to my left, outside those walls, there's a huge development that covers this whole side of the hill over here. Right now, while we're in worship, the majority of people who live in that development really don't care anything about those three things. It is not a driving mission in their life to worship God or to edify one another. It's not a driving mission to go tell the story of Jesus. There's a whole group, the majority of which don't really care about spiritual things. I'm not saying they're against the church. I'm not saying they're anti-God. They just don't care about spiritual things right now. What they care about is, are they going to get a chance to cut the grass today? What they care about is what they had for breakfast, what they're going to have for lunch, or whether they're going to, they're, the golf course is open, or how wet it is from the rain. They're thinking about the things of life. They're not thinking about spiritual things. Let's talk about your neighborhood. I would also say that the majority of the people who live in whatever you consider to be your neighborhood are not driven by those three things either. I would also say most of the people that you know in your life have contact with outside of the church don't care about spiritual things. They don't care about worship of God, edifying one another. They don't care about telling the story. Would you agree that's probably true that the majority of people just don't care about spiritual things? So if we look at that, it would be easy to say, yeah, that's true. And man, maybe, maybe there really isn't much hope. But stop for just a moment. Most of the folks out there don't care about spiritual things. And here's the next statement. And neither did you at one time in your life. Neither did you. Neither did your family. Some of us grew up in the church. So I grew up in the church. My mom and dad came to Jesus, so I've only known the church. Now, I still had to come to a place where I make a decision to follow Jesus for myself, but I would say my exposure early on was church. But you know what? There was a day when my parents cared nothing about spiritual things. They would be like everyone else. They care about the retirement. They care about golf. They care about cutting the lawn, painting the house. That's what they care about. Didn't care about spiritual things. At one point in time, you didn't care about any of those things. And here you are. Huh. Well, what happened there? How'd you get here? How'd you find your way to Jesus? Stumble on him? Maybe, sometimes. But I would contend to you that there's actually a plan. There's actually a pattern that we can see through time and through history in looking at people's lives to see how it is that they arrived at a place of caring about spiritual things. I want to explore that together in these next couple weeks together. I'm going to call this series Seven Steps. Short series called Seven Steps. Now you're going, what does that mean, seven steps? First of all, it is not a a mini 12-step type of thing. We're not trying to say 12 steps will make it easier. Let's do seven. That's not that. There's seven steps as far as a strategy, a thought process as to what it will take for this church to be, quote, unquote, successful in carrying out its mission for Jesus Christ. 
In fact, in the course of these couple of weeks, I'm going to put it out there for every single person that calls us their church home. I'm going to put the challenge out that would say this. This is how we're asking you to live your lives. I'm going to lay out in such a way that you're going to real clearly hear me say, this is, if you're going to say Essex Alliance Church is my home, if you're going to say Northern Avenue Alliance Church is my home, you're going to hear me say, then this is how we're asking you to live your life. We're going to lay it right out for you. I think it's a fair thing. If I'm going to be part of any group, I think it's fair to say, so what do you expect of me? We're going to tell you exactly what it is that we expect of you of how to live our lives. Now, for some of you, you would say, hey, I'm not a member, and so I, I won't ever join the church and be a voting member, so no expectation on me. Sorry, it comes right from Scripture. So that means that really what we're going to define here is what God would say, this is how we're going to go and we're going to make a difference in the world. So you walk with me in these next couple of weeks and see, I hope, a strategic plan and how we are part of it. I'm going to cover some things that you've heard before, probably not for five, eight, ten years maybe. Um, I haven't done this kind of series for a while. You'll hear some stories that are mixed in, some Bible stories that you perhaps have heard that makes a story in the case for us about our seven steps. Let's start with this. We're talking about being on mission. I'm just guessing that most of you are familiar with the movie series of Mission Impossible. Uh, Tom Cruise and, of course, all the things he goes on. But how many of you, I know I'm going to date myself when I do this stuff, how many of you don't just remember, but actually remember the day where you watched the real Mission Impossible on Saturday nights? Okay. So there's some of us still alive. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about right there. Okay? Mission Impossible on Saturday nights. That we watched as a family. That was the show. Man, they had the most state-of-the-art stuff. First thing they had, they had this miniature tape recorder that started every show. Now, some of you are thinking, state-of-the-art? It was state-of-the-art back then. How many of you remember the name of the guy who was head of the Mission Impossible team? His last name? Anybody? Phelps. Phelps. And the show would start each time. He would walk into some secluded place, some isolated place, who knows why or where he'd get there. He'd walk in, he'd open a closet, pull open a drawer, no one else is around. He'd pull out an envelope and he'd pull out the slickest little tape player. And he'd push the button. And every time it would start like this, good morning, Mr. Phelps. And then it would lay out the whole storyline as to what they had to accomplish. And then when it would get done, right before he'd give them the missions, right now he's just giving them all the background, and then the voice would say, the mission, should you choose to accept it? Stop right there. Do you re- now, maybe I missed that episode, but they always accepted it. <laughs> Listen, I'm watching the show, and I'm hearing some of these missions. I'm going, holy smoke, give that one back. Don't do that one. You know, you're going to die doing that one. They always accepted the mission. You know, Jesus never said to the church, your mission, should you choose to accept it. Jesus has already always had the expectation that anybody that would take the name Christian with the name would take on the mission of Christ. So it does pain me a little to think that in the church of Jesus Christ today, not just this church, the church of Jesus Christ, We've got to beg, ask, and challenge people to be on mission. 
I got to be honest, I'm going to preach, I'm being on mission. But there's a part of me that says, we just shouldn't have to do that. And I say that to myself as well, because I know how easy it is to get off of mission. So that's what we want to talk about and look at. Now, if I ask you this morning, what is your mission? What, what is your life mission? What is the mission that you live for? Some of you would not know how to answer that question. Now, admittedly, we're in church, so most of us would know how we should answer the question. Most of us would have an idea of what should be included in there. In fact, some of you are thinking, well, you just mentioned three things, Scott. I'm going to go with those. You know, worship and exalt. I'm going to stick with those. That fits. Yeah, I got it. But let's be honest. What are some of your missions? Uh, let's put it out there. For some of us, this, for most of us, I would say, the, the idea of living on mission tends to come about kind of by accident because we practice the idea of the present moment mission. The present moment mission means whatever I'm facing today is the mission that I'm on. It means that my life is typically not driven by a life mission. It's driven by the moment of the, that I'm living in, and that determines the mission. The problem with that approach is a couple of things. Number one, your life mission keeps changing constantly, or it gets lost completely because you're just wrapped up in whatever the present moment is. Now, understand something real critical here. Your mission is absolutely critical. Your mission in your life is like the sun in the solar system. The mission in which you live on, your rest of your life will revolve around that mission. That's why it's so critical to get it right. And so for some of us, our mission here, to be honest, is job and career. For some of us, a job and career. It's money, it's climbing the ladder, it's providing, it's getting retirement, all those things. Yes, you do things with your family. Yes, you go out and have fun. Yes, you participate in the church. You have vacations, you have hobbies, all of those things. But all of those things revolve around your job and your career and being successful. What happens is your job goes away. Financial hardship, job is gone. Now what do you do with your mission? Uh, a lot can be at stake. Uh, some of us, our life mission is the way that we look, the way that we carry ourselves. Am I pretty enough? Am I fit enough? Am I stylish enough? Am I trending enough? Problem with that, trends come and go, and some of you are still stuck in the 70s or 80s. Don't look around right now. <laughs> Just keep looking at me. But if, you're, if your mission is to be that uh, you know, that stylish and in, in, man, you're working all the time, right? Because that culture is changing, that mission is changing. For others of us, our mission is what, pe- what people think of us. We got this mission to make sure that I'm, por- I'm portrayed accurately or, or in the right light. Am I nice enough? Am I, people see me as smart enough? Um, do I have the right house, the right car? Are my kids playing the right sports? It's all about the image, and some of us will work very, very hard to maintain the image. Years ago, my dad worked at IBM back in Endicott, New York. Uh, my dad had a job there, came out of the war, was working in a grocery store, got a job at IBM. My dad was not an engineer. My dad had went to college. He worked in a warehouse, sorting parts to make sure that you could have the parts in place to go make, not computers back then when he was doing it, make clocks and other things, you know, time stamp machines, whatever. He was in charge of making sure the warehouse was stocked. What was interesting is that my dad was required every day to wear black pants, white shirt, and a tie. And if you went outside the doors of IBM, even people going in to drive, to do drill presses and those things, we're not talking about engineers, all had black pants, white shirts, ties. And they had locker rooms where they could go change and put their work clothes on. And then after that, you went back out with your black pants, your white shirt, and your tie. Why? Look, it's very important. The corporate logo kind of thing. If that's what you're after, that's your mission. Man, that's a tough one too. 
Got to keep the image up all the time. There's, a, there's another one, and I'll just talk about this one real briefly. But there's another mission that many people find themselves on, and that's the mission of family and the mission of children. And this one is, is a hard one because for a lot of people, when they're in the child-rearing years, their whole lives revolve around the children, revolve around the kids, and revolve around the family. Your job, your recreation, your home, your life basically totally revolves around your children. What's, what happens in life's mission for you when your children grow up and grow out, besides, you know, party and celebration? After that, you know, what happens? I mean, you know the statistics, but the numbers are so high about the number of marriage couples that go through divorce or severe problems when the last kid moves out. Why? Because they've never had anything in their life as a mission other than their kids and their family. Now, please know any things I've just named are good, good endeavors in life, but they can't be the core of your mission. In Matthew chapter 28, we have two verses of Scripture that Jesus gives us. And, and in those verses, we know those words as the Great Commission. And I'll change it. We know, we know it as the Great Commission of Christ. Better in the church, we know it as the mission of every Christian, or should be. Here it is, Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, interesting that we have this mandate from Jesus. We get this the great commission, which he's putting everybody on mission. And if we look at it and understand that the, right off the bat, the key, the key first word is go. Therefore, go. You've come, you know the story, you're followers of me, you know the whole redemptive plan, you know I'm alive, back from the dead, therefore, go. Emphasis is on the word go. What's interesting is if we look it up in the Greek, it is a key emphasis on this word go, and you don't quite understand it until you look back in church history and realize that Christians have never done well with the go. Christians like the stay part. They're not crazy about the go part. They like the stay part. They like the stay together part. They like the huddle part. They like to be together. They like the worship. They like the church family part. And I have to tell you, in the culture in which we live today, more and more Christians want to huddle, huddle, huddle more together. Because there's this fear of the world, if you will. So that's been kind of the issue of the church all along. In the history of, Christ of Christianity, that Christians have typically loved. Now, I'll give you an exception. When Jesus first gave this great commission, and shortly thereafter, the church started in Jerusalem. Peter gets up and prays, thousands come to Jesus, thousands keep coming to Jesus, and then pretty soon we see the church begin to expand and grow. Early on, some got the idea of go, but you know what's interesting? We talked about this yeah, a couple years ago. What was interesting, one of the key things that happened in church history started in Jerusalem, and it was called persecution. And persecution of Christians and persecution of church took a whole bunch of Christians that would have just stayed in one spot, and they all left. And when they left, they went telling the story. And so they all went. Now, granted, they didn't quite go the way we like to think they were going. They had a little help going. But Christians have always struggled with the go. We like the huddle. We like hanging out. And soon what happens if you look in history, if you leave Christians to themselves long enough, they gather together, they create their own communities, their own schools, their own radio stations, their own music, their own little world and their own little bubble. Now, stop right there quickly before I get too much trouble. Yay for Christian music. Yay for Christian radios. 
radio stations. We have them here. We now have satellite, multiple Christian stations. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But just stop and think about the bubble that we can put ourselves in with all of the quote-unquote Christian stuff we have all around us. When I was a kid growing up, if you, want to, if you had a musical artist you liked and wanted to listen to it, uh, other than the radio, you had to go buy a record, vinyl record. Now, granted, by the time I came along, 45s were still out there, but you didn't buy 45s. What you bought was 33s. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, God bless you. You missed a wonderful time of life. Um, <laughs> 33s, vinyl records, the hiss and the hum and all those things that would go with it. So if you had an artist you like, you go to the record shop. Remember the record shop, record shop for some of you? Just racks and racks and racks of records. You thumb through there, find your favorite artist. There was no tapes. About that time, eight-track tapes were just coming out, and they were just going nowhere and never did. But we had vinyl. About that time, high school, early high school, a couple of evangelists got on the wire, got on the, the preaching pulpit and started condemning all of the secular records out there and artists because they were all Satanists and that there was backmasking and that they were putting these evil messages on the records and so everyone should burn their records. And uh, my church had a record burning party. Other churches did where kids were bringing their secular records and burning the vinyl. So, you know what I did? I hid my records. I wasn't quite ready to give up B.J. Thomas and Bread and a couple of the other ones, you know, I, you know Neil Diamond. I, I wasn't giving those up. So I hid those records and didn't, didn't join the party. And admittedly, you feel horrible because, like, everyone's burning records. And so I kept them. And when no one was home, I got them out. And I would listen. In fact, one day I said, I'm going to play this backwards. Because what the evangelist said was, if you play it backwards, you hear them say, follow Satan, follow Satan. So I, I, that's what I was going to do. Friends, I'm going to tell you right now, I spent all day, you cannot play them backwards. <laughs> it doesn't work. You can't. And I still have those records, don't tell. Uh, my mom and dad are both gone to heaven. Ah, they're okay now. So that was the culture in which we lived. And that was the culture that was there. And if you go back in time, you will always find a group of Christians that will find something in the world to be frightened of, afraid of, scared of, or concerned that we're going to be overcome by. And so what happens is they huddle. Christians huddle. All through history, we get, to, we get concerned about the wrong things and we gather ourselves together. So with this fear of the world, Christians get together and count down the days till Jesus comes. Oh, Jesus, come. Oh, please come back. And while they're huddled together, just waiting for that day, I don't think Jesus had that in mind for his church. I don't think that that's what Jesus had in mind for the church. Listen, I want you all huddled together and hide until the day I come back. We don't get that sense of that feeling. In fact, the disciples asked Jesus one day, they said, listen, when are you going to put the kingdom together? I mean, we're waiting for you to do this. So they asked him when it's going to be. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, then they gathered around him, referring to Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Don't forget, he was the king who was going to make it all happen, be the new kingdom. Is now the time when, Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. He goes, it's, it's none of your business. It's not your job. Please listen. It is not your life mission to go figure out when Jesus is going to return. You've heard me say this before, and if you're watching anyone who says they figured out the code as to the when Jesus will return, they didn't. 
If Jesus wants to make a code that no one can figure out, no one's going to figure out his code. And he didn't put a code. What he said was, I'm coming back. Keep busy till then, because look what he says right next after that. He says, it's not for you to know the time or the dates. And then he says this, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He goes, stop worrying about when, just know that I'm going to give you power in which to live, and with that power, you're going to go. He has that in there again. You're going to go places. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go to Judea, you're going to go to Samaria, and you're going to go to the other parts of the world. Now, please capture this real quickly. When Jesus said that to them, after he lets them in on the mission, after he gets the, tells them what they're going to do, as soon as he hears this, he says, you're going to go be my witnesses in these, in these uh, different places. Immediately, they knew what he was talking about. They understood it. You see, I don't have to, you know, today we have to explain what, Ju- what Jerusalem meant and what Judea meant and Samaria. To them, none of that had to be explained. It was really simple. Here's how it goes. It goes like this. There, when Jesus said this to them, where were they? In Jerusalem. So he says, so you're right here, Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you're going to tell the story, and you're going to tell the story right here. But listen, we know some history here that Jerusalem at that time was filled with people for some special, you know, uh, religious activities taking place. So when those activities would be done, those events would be done, they'd be leaving. And anyone in Jerusalem who would be traveling, and you left Jerusalem, guess where you travel next? Judea. And after you pass through Judea, you know where you go next? Samaria. And if you leave the region of Samaria, you know where you're at? Man, you're out there in the ends of the world. And so when he says this to them, listen, you're going to receive power and you're going to preach. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Everyone just got it. Because like, well, of course, because that's where, we, that's where we're going to go. That's where we're going to travel. And what you're telling us is wherever we travel, we're to be telling the story. Exactly. Emphasis on the word go. You need to go. Rick Warren says this. He says there are only two things that you can do on earth that you cannot do in heaven. Now, admittedly, I spent a little time thinking this through, but not enough. You might come up with something else, I'm sure. He says there are two things that you can do on earth that you cannot do in heaven. One is sin, and the other is tell people about Jesus. And which of those two do you think Jesus left you here on earth to do till he came back? Not sin. To tell people the story of Jesus. Do you realize that in the United States, we're, one, we're the fourth largest mission field? People think mission field, I mean, we're one of the sending companies. Actually, we are sending, but we're such a huge group and no one's sending anyone to us. And yet our numbers are going the wrong direction as far as followers of Jesus. We're mission field of our own. Now, the struggle of what it means to live out the Great Commission has always been a struggle for religious people. The idea of going out into the world has always been hard. Now, this is what happened in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is hanging out with uh, people that were not church people. These were people that had some bad reputations. And here's what it says in Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the tax collectors, you might recall, some of you have been here, the tax collectors were considered to be the worst people on earth. That's why it was always tax collectors and sinners. They were considered the worst people you could find. Now, 
what's interesting to note, ask yourself this question. It says here that Jesus keeps gathering with and being with, and it actually says that these worst of the people keep gathering around Jesus. Ask yourself the question, why were the worst sinners on earth? Now, I'm not saying they are. I'm saying that was the title of the day. Why would the people that were the least holy, the most dirty, the most repulsive to anything holy, why would they want to hang out with the holiest person that ever walked the earth? Friends, please, you've got to think this through here for a minute. You've got the people that would typically, we would think, would be the people most repulsed by the gospel message. By the way, these are the people in the context of the church of that day, these were the people who were most repulsive to these religious leaders. And you have to ask yourself the question, how could the least holy people who've ever lived want to be around the holiest person who's ever lived? There's only two answers, and they're both kind of contained in the same. And number one, A, because Jesus was on mission, and B, because he loved them just the way that they were, period. You show me someone who knows that they are loved by someone else unconditionally, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their background, or regardless of their sin, whatever, regardless of anything else, someone just loves them, and that person is going to be around the person who extends that grace to them. The people that should be furthest away from Jesus were the ones that kept gathering around him. But now catch the story, but the religious leaders, they didn't like that. They kept criticizing Jesus. They kept criticizing and grumbling that Jesus welcomes sinners. He even hangs out with them. Well, of course he does. You can't be on mission if you're not hanging out with them. He can't be on mission if, if he's not with them. And how will, be, how will we ever fulfill our mission if we don't go and connect with people who are outside of the church and don't care anything about spiritual things. Now remember, as I said earlier, I'm not talking about them being angry at God or angry at the church. They just don't even know that what's being offered. And how can we be on mission if we're not hanging out with them as well? Now be sure to hear this next statement. This next statement has two parts to it that's critical. This world desperately needs Christians, followers of Jesus, who will deliberately connect themselves with spiritually unresolved people that will get connected out there and not huddle in here, but will get connected out there and they'll do so because in their heart they really believe that people outside of the church would really like to have a relationship with Jesus if they only knew what you knew and experienced. As opposed to the idea of hopeless. See, most people could look at these, these tax collectors and sinners and say, man, these are the people not even worth, don't spend time with them, not worth it. We need people who are willing to connect themselves with unresolved people outside of the church and believing that if they just knew the Jesus that we could see, that we know, they would want to believe in him as well. Let's talk about connecting real quick. When Jesus was here in ministry, he spent most of his time in public connecting with people who didn't know what to believe spiritually. The sinners and the tax collectors. Catch that? He spent most of his time with people that were outside of the church. Some of you might remember this song. It's by a country western artist named Miranda Lambert. The name of the song is, it was entitled, or is entitled A Heart Like Mine. I remember it well because I used to listen to it all the time on WOKO. Um, if you're new or visiting, I just lied in church. <laughs> 
I do not listen to WOKO. I will never listen to OK and, and never have. But she had a song that a lot of Christians didn't appreciate, but the theology is right on. And in the chorus of her song, uh, a co- uh, entitled A Heart Like Mine, the chorus says this, well, I heard that Jesus, he drank wine, and I bet we'd get along just fine. He could calm the storm and he could heal the blind, and I bet he'd understand a heart like mine. Now, a whole bunch of Christians didn't like it, but I have to tell you, man, she's got sound theology, understanding the model of Jesus. I want to look at one character as we wrap up, one quick storyline of someone who became a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to end, I'm going to give you the, 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 the first step, but I'm going to pick up next week and talk about it. One story as we wrap up, it's from Matthew chapter 9, and it's actually the story of how Matthew became a disciple of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9 says this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, uh, many, tax, uh, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Real quickly, background. Matthew's a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated. I know that we've talked about this, you know, different sermons and times, but in case you're new or visiting, never heard this, the tax collectors were the most hated of the Jewish people because most of them were Jewish themselves, and to be a tax collector means you have signed on with Roman, with the Romans. So they would hate you because you're a Jew that has actually signed on with the Romans. On top of that, the deal was this. If you're a tax collector for Rome, uh, the, the local regional governor of Rome or of the area would say to you, here's how much money you have to give me per person. They would do a census so they knew how many people, all those things. You're going to give me X amount of dollars, uh, X amount of coins per quarter for every person in the census. This is what I get. What you get is up to you. You can add anything you want to, onto that with reason. That's why they hated the tax collectors, because the tax collectors were stealing from the people. The tax collectors would set a, a, an, an, an absorbent amount and then tax the people, and you had to pay it. If it was within reason, you had to pay it, even though the government got just a little bit. The tax collector himself got quite a bit. People hated the tax collectors. It was a bad, it was a bad system, but it worked well for the tax collectors. People hated them for working with the Romans and from stealing their money. And so the truly religious people would have nothing to do with these people because these were the worst. These were considered the dirtiest, the lowliest. Tim Harlow wrote this. He said, the problem these religious leaders were having is they suffered from gracism. He says this, gracism is a horrible sin just like racism. Racism is about the color of your skin. Gracism is about the color of your sin. And he goes on to say this, gracism says, I deserve Jesus, but you don't because your sin's too great and my sin's not that bad. Gracism. The sin of the tax collectors put them into a very, very bitter situation because people hated them for what they, who they were. Now, by all classic Christian common sense, dirty Matthew, sinner Matthew, should never have wanted to be around Jesus. 
The unholy just don't want to be around holy people. And by all common Christian sense, Matthew should have never been one of his followers and should never have been invited to be a leader. Jesus comes up to Matthew while he's in his tax collector's booth, walks up and says to Matthew, we don't have much more to go on, walks up and says, follow me. And Matthew says, okay. Wouldn't you just like to be there to observe these moments where Jesus says to Peter, leave your boats and your nets, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter goes, okay. Matthew leaves. Matthew left his bookkeeping stuff. Matthew left money. Matthew left Roman guards that would have been dumbfounded. And Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew goes, I'm in. And just walks away and follows Jesus. Let's be honest here. For some of you, for some of you, getting to the place of following Jesus was really work. I mean, man, he was calling you and calling you, and you resisted, and you fought, and you had to understand this and that. And for some of you, you're not even willing to make that decision yet. And here you got Matthew, Jesus, follow me. And Matthew goes, yep, I'm in. Let's go. And it was real. It was authentic. Now, what's interesting, the next part of the story, the next verse goes from Matthew saying yes to Jesus having dinner at Matthew's house. I mean, there's no pause. That happens next. Matthew says yes, and then it says, now Jesus having dinner at Matthew's house. How'd that happen? I mean, where did that come from? All of a sudden, Jesus had, had dinner. And the Bible says he's at dinner with a whole bunch of other sinners. It's a sinner's party at Matthew's house. Not catch that dinner, sinner? No? Okay. Anyway, um, I thought it was cute when I wrote it. So it's, a, it's a, a dinner party at Matthew's house. And the question would be, what are all those people doing there? What are all these sinner people doing there? Um, now, please, real quickly, don't sanitize the story. We Christians love to do that. We imagine Jesus being at this kind of gathering, and we begin to imagine kind of a picture that usually isn't quite right. Uh, we like to picture the people all gathered around while Jesus is reciting uh, little quotes from Isaiah. Nope. And we like to picture that they're having some soft harp music in the background while Matthew is busy bringing out more toasted Totino's pizza rolls and grape juice. Nope. I mean, understand that these people that are there, all they have known is a life outside of anything spiritual, and they're probably dealing with the same kind of vulgarity in life together in dinner, because that's who they had as friends, each other, that's all they had. Years ago, I was hunting up in northern Michigan, fell in our church at that time, had this cabin uh, that he would let me use, I'd take my family up. But one of the times I was going, he said, I have a whole group of guys there. Would you mind going up for a day or two and just to be there with him and things? And I said, sure. He's a businessman. So there were probably 12 people in this cabin. Slept 16 people in, in homemade uh, queen-size bunk beds. So it was quite the place, about a you know, square mile worth of land that he owned. Um, and so it was quite the place. So I went up and no one there knew I was a minister. No one knew except for one guy who was kind of the caretaker. And he and I would talk a lot. I'd help him do some things. He had another guy there helping him named Dave. So we have to go, we're going out to put some blinds out. This is the night before the hunt. So we're in a pickup truck. Driver, me, Dave. We're in the middle of nowhere. Dave's the kind of guy that can't say his name without putting some kind of profanity before it or after it. He can't say a sentence without some of the most graphic, you know, words imaginable in any sentence. So talking to Dave was quite an adventure. <laughs> so we're in the truck and we're driving in the middle of nowhere and Dave is just talking and man, he is just going a blue streak. 
And I can handle that. I live in the world, you know. I referee soccer. I'm out there. So he's just going off everywhere, every other word, blah, 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 blah. And so we're in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden the driver slams on the brake and goes, uh, Dave, will you help me fix something real, back, real quick in the back of the truck? I'm not stupid. <laughs> in fact, I'm kind of sitting there in the middle seat, putting my head down laughing, because I know exactly what's going on. I look up in the mirror, and sure enough, the driver goes around the back, and he says, here, here you can see one. So they're bent down like they're looking at something under the truck. And then they get back up. Dave looks like he's seen a ghost. And they get back in the truck and we take off driving. Dave says not one word. Now, I haven't heard the conversation, but I know what took place. Dave has not said one word. So I try to engage Dave in conversation. Dave's not going to speak because he doesn't know how to speak because he just found out he's sitting next to holiness. If only he knew me. Holiness. So finally, I can't stand this. And so finally I go, Dave, let me guess. You just found out I'm a minister and you just found out that you've been talking a blue streak in front of a minister. And he goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. As if I'm condemning him to hell. It's like, I don't have that power, buddy. I said, relax. Just be yourself. And he still couldn't be himself because he didn't know how to do that. The picture I have to get for you is Dave in that moment in the truck. This is the party Jesus is at. And no one's pulling them aside to say, you know, you're with the Messiah here. You ought to be careful what you say. And Jesus is not telling them that. This is where Jesus is. This is the party that he's at. Don't sanitize it. It's real. And Jesus is happy to be there. But now catch this. To the religious people looking in, this is obviously so wrong. So that's why I said don't sanitize it. This is obviously so wrong. They say to his disciples, so your teacher, he really likes to party with the pagans, doesn't he? And then they say this, how can you explain such behavior? Jesus actually hears them, and so he actually engages. I'll just read, just listen, I'll read again. So hearing this, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but it's the sick. For I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to hang out with the sinners. That's why I exist. Do you realize that Jesus spent most of his daily life walking this earth, he spent it with the people who were the furthest away from God? And do you realize that for the majority of Christians, they spend most of their time gathered together with most of the people who are closest to God. Wait a minute. How did that happen? How did that happen? I mean, Jesus spent most of his time with the people who were the furthest away. And the church people spend most of their time with the people who are closest to. Well, Jesus was on mission. And he was mission all the time. But that's not normally, naturally where we live. Our, national de- our, our natural default is to huddle with other believers. Do you know that researchers tell us that once a person who gives their life to Jesus hits the seven to 10 year mark, they've been a follower of Jesus for seven to 10 years, they tell us 
that virtually you will have no unchurched friends. Uh, everyone to be in your close friends are all going to be church people. Seven to ten years, all church people. Now you may say, well, I work with different people. Yeah, but are your friends? That's the difference right there. In fact, John Stott calls this the rabbit hole Christianity. He says when Christians aren't around, uh, aren't around other Christians at all, I mean other non-Christians at all, Christians aren't around non-Christians at all. The only time is when they pop out of their holes to make a dad, mad dash to some Christian event or some other Christian hole or to pop their heads up long enough to rebuke this culture in which we live in. Then they pop their heads back into the hole. Let me ask you a quick question. If you are a disciple of Jesus, who is it that you're trying to be most like? Who are you supposed to be most like? It's not a trick question. The answer is Jesus. Got it. Jesus. So let's follow his model. And what did Jesus do? Jesus spent time connecting with unchurched people. Jesus hung out with the people who weren't the churched, the people who didn't, were not spiritually resolved. They were unresolved. And listen, I'm a pastor. I get how hard it can be. My whole life, I mean, I live with Christians, I work with Christians, I preach to Christians, I dine with Christians. I had to make a decision long ago to say, I, if I'm going to live out the mission, I got to be out making friends, people outside of the church. Do you know researchers tell us something else? Eight out of 10 people, blind survey, eight out of 10 people say that they would attend church if a friend would just ask them. Eight out of 10 would say yes if asked by a friend. Now, you know the key word in that statement, what it is, right? It's not ask. The key word is what? Friend. The key word is friend. See, you center something because we ask, they don't come. It's because you're not a friend. Just an acquaintance. Haven't made the friendship. So with all that is the background, let me give you step one, and I close. Step one in our plan. A follower of Jesus from our church builds friendships of integrity with non-churched people. The first part of our plan is real straightforward. People who call this church their home build friendships of integrity with non-church people. That's the starting place. You say, well, what does integrity mean? Thank you for asking. That's where we're going to pick up next time and talk about what that means. Integrity. Stand, please. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, one, I am so thankful that years ago, in my mom and dad's life, there were some people that had friendships of integrity with my mom and dad. And one day they invited them to go to church and they said, okay. And now a generation later, here I am, brother and sister following Jesus because someone was a friend to them. I pray not just today, but in these next few weeks together, you would burn into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, into our being what it means to be on mission for Jesus. There's hope in this world, and the hope is the story of you. And you've given us the privilege telling that story. Dismiss us today in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
God bless you.